the appropriate hymn to be played in preparation for our text in Job 42 this morning. If you turn there at this point, text that Pastor Steve read, we find Job in the latter days of enduring his calamity, having his soul stilled before the Lord. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the perfect law of liberty. Help us, Lord, now to not just be faithful hearers, but doers of the word. As we listen to your word preached, help us to keep our focus, Lord, on not just the word of God, but the God of the word. May the messenger of your, your word just be merely that this morning, a messenger. We're here to worship, and we only have an audience of one to whom we're supposed to worship. And I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to that which you would have us individually and corporately learn and own and live from your word this morning. So Lord, it's just me and you. It's every individual and you, and then it's collectively as one body worshiping one Lord. May we hear from you for our good and your glory on this Lord's Day. In Christ's name, amen. I can remember a time when my wife's most valuable piece of jewelry was misplaced. It was a, a ring that was given to her by her father when her mom had passed away. That was a great agony for a time. It had nothing to do with the material value of the ring, but everything a personal value for so many reasons. That made my anxiety to find it even more realized. We looked everywhere obvious to find it. We just couldn't. I was devastated for her. We resigned ourselves that it was just lost. We couldn't actually, we actually stopped looking for some time and just lived with a sadness, I suppose. Sometime later, while cleaning out our closet, in the inner recesses of some other personally valuable things to us, we saw the box that the ring was in. What relief. Why didn't we look there in the first place? Back when we had decided that that was the best place, after all, we had forgotten. <laughs> Regardless, when we came to the end of our searching, we should have just kept searching. Elizabeth Elliot describes a time of loss of something much more difficult. She says this, as I look back on that time, I think it was a lesson for me, actually the first lesson of ministry in the school of faith. That is, it was my first experience of having to bow down before that which I could not possibly explain. She was not speaking of the horrible tragedy of her husband's slaughter that many of you are familiar with in the mission field. She's speaking of the murder of her sole translator, Macario, while she was young and still single missionary. She goes on to say in her book, usually we need not bow. We can simply ignore the unexplainable because we have other things to occupy our minds. We sweep it under the rug and we evade the questions. 
For Elizabeth, at this time, there were no rugs left and nothing else to occupy her mind and nothing to distract her. For Elliot and for Job, and for many of God's people like you and me, life has just seemed to come to a hard stop. She continues in her book called The Strange Ashes by saying, faith's most severe tests come not when we see nothing, but when we see a stunning array of evidence that seems to prove our faith vain. If God were God, if he were omnipotent, if he had even cared, would this have even happened? Is this that I face now the reward of my obedience, she says. One turns in disbelief again from the circumstances and looks into the abyss. But in the abyss, there is only blackness. No glimmer of light, no answering echo. It was a long time before I came to the realization that it is in our acceptance of what is given, whatever that may be, that God gives himself. This grief, this sorrow, this total loss that empties my hands and breaks my heart, I may, if I will, accept, and by accepting it, I find in my hands something to offer. And so I give it back to him, who in mysterious exchange gives himself to me. Many believers have faced what seemed to be an unconscionable calamity in their lives that seems to come out of nowhere and for no reason. Remember, Job had no idea what was going on behind the scenes of heaven, so he of all people would be left wondering why. Remember, he asks the Lord the question, why some 20 times in this wisdom book, and God never answers our Souls grieve the most when there's no answers and no reason for why difficulty comes. We know there's no sin in our lives. We can't see any immediate reasonable why of the calamitous event that comes our way. The agony even deepens. And that's where we find Job some 4,000 years ago. Now, as we've studied the last time we were together, he's heard from God out of the whirlwind, this theophany. God uses creation to explain his own greatness to Job. Job's only response is to say, I lay my hand on my mouth. Later, he states, after God uses the behemoth and the Leviathan to explain his own nature, Job just sits in dust and ashes, contemplating the condition of his own heart, but still in his pain. Someone has said any stranger to that dust has not yet seen God for who he is, however much he may know about him. Remember Job said in chapter 42 and verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. He had much intellectual knowledge of God. He had walked with God. But he's quickly realized that knowledge of God does not merely give birth to to a walk with God, but submission to his personal sovereign oversight does. Now we're going to turn our attention back to 
Job's second and final response to the Lord's second speech to him. These are the words of a man who is willing to submit himself to the sovereign unknown to him. He's a broken, tender man that realizes something is going on that's out of his control, but completely under the control of the Almighty. And here Job intentionally resigns himself to God and his purposes. And there's three things I'd like us to notice in these words of Job's repentance. In verse 1, we're going to find an admission. And then we're going to consider a declaration. And then finally, a confession. An admission, a declaration, and a confession in these six short verses that I hope will be a help to us. Job clearly surrenders in this text that was read earlier to the omnipotence of God and he admits his own ignorance in one phrase he says this I know you can do all things it's the first line of verse 2 I know you can do all things by saying I know Job is simply stating that which he already understands God is all powerful and when our hearts are right with the Lord there's no review of any doctrine of God that would, we would ever tire of. Job knows what he knows, and particularly about his omnipotence. God is all-powerful. But in addition, Job expands his understanding of omnipotence by admitting that there are omnipotent things God does beyond Job's own recognition. We all love to see the omnipotent hand of God in creation. We've seen God clearly pleased to even heal terminal patients. We've prayed inevitable rain away to protect the church fellowship or outreach activity, and God's done that. But here, Job is submitting himself to the multitude of powerful acts of God that he would have never been aware of. So it's beyond just what he knows. Can we go farther here together this morning? Just for a moment and consider something else. I believe since Joe is freely admitting that there are matters of omnipotence in the natural world that he would never be aware of, could he also be admitting that omnipotence also attends to matters of the moral world? God is in control of all things moral as he is in control of all things natural. His intentions are to develop the whole of our person in godliness in times of calamity. And certainly our moral development is the development of the image of God in man as well. But even more than surrendering to matters of God's omnipotence, known and unknown, he surrenders to matters of God's omniscience, God is all-knowing. And he says here very, very clearly, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know that you can do all things, verse 2, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job is here confessing not merely 
that God can do anything, his omnipotence, but he can do anything he wants. God is free and can do and will do anything he purposes to do. One author said that God can not only do anything he chooses, theoretically, he does anything actually. God purposes what he pleases and performs what he purposes. Last week we discussed what the Lord had messaged to Job regarding his nature and his sovereign control over all, his, all, all things. Chapter 40, verses 9 to 14, remember? God reminds Job that he is radically underqualified to do the job of dealing with the wicked people in the world. Chapter 40 and verse 19. God reminds Job that he can't even overcome one beast by himself, but God certainly can. Chapter 41 and verse 10. If Job was no match for a beast, there's no way that he could really stand against God. Talbert says, and how can Job obligate God to do anything when everything, including that which Job lost, is God's anyway? Job's coming to realize this as he submits to his Lord, Yahweh, as the infinite, omnipotent, and omniscient creator that he was. A friend of mine said this, anyone who cannot undertake God's works has no right to undermine God's ways. It's a sobering moment of reflection, reminder, and actually wonder for Job, as Pastor Steve already read. In verse number three, these are things that are too wonderful for Job. They're beyond him, which he did not know. And, and quite frankly, some of these things he would never know. So that's Job's admission. What's Job's declaration? I find a very strong declaration here in this wisdom literature. If you go over to verse number five, he says here, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Um, I remember in high school chemistry class, I had a dear sweet teacher in her 70s named uh, Mrs. Rother. What a sweet, sweet lady she was. I would study and study and study for chemistry, quizzes, tests. The quizzes and daily assignments I could ace pretty easily. When it came to test preparation, the taking of the test, I often felt like I knew nothing. How could I ace all the daily assignments and the quizzes and then conceptually not put everything together when it came test time? Inevitably, I would come out of those tests with a grade, with a grade that was um, less than satisfying. There was a lot that I knew. There was so much that I just didn't. 
I had to come to realize there were things that were true about chemistry that I would probably never know, but they were still true. Mrs. Rother is a tiny, tiny little sweet lady. She would notice my frustration and she would come over to my six foot five, 210 pound frame when I had my head in my hand in sadness. And she would just lean over to not embarrass me and she would whisper very encouraging words like, God has bigger plans for you than this test. she was freely willing to admit that I was ignorant in chemistry. <laughs> she apparently knew something I didn't know, that God had plans for me beyond that class. And I'm so thankful for that. Because I got Greek and Hebrew, I just couldn't get chemistry. <laughs> Job had been tutored by God about God for some time. In his speeches among his friends, he's intelligently articulated wonderful and theological truths about God Almighty. Job was a student of the word, if you will. He was at the head of the class and at the head of his community and of his profession with a solid theology and, and much spiritual wisdom. But this statement, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, reveals that which he had learned by the hearing of the ear and that it had been exhaustively utilized during his months of suffering. He had nothing left. He's on empty, but God isn't. I can remember when I had my undergraduate degree and, I, and got my master's degree and I came back here and I don't know, I was youth pastoring from 86 to 90, and then 91 became the pastor here, and the master's degree, and I can remember getting to the mid to late 90s and, and thinking, wow, I need more. <laughs> I need more education. At about that time, the church was contemplating whether I should be the next pastor of the church or not, and I can remember talking to our former senior pastor by saying, you can talk all you want about me being the next pastor here, but I'm empty. I'm not going to be able to do this unless I have some more education. <laughs> I need a deeper study of God's word. I had come to the point where I felt like I really couldn't minister anymore unless I had more. You go on to get your Master of Divinity degree. In the first hour of my first class, one of my professors said, you've made one of the greatest choices in your life to come back to the seminary and finish your Master of Divinity degree. And he said, this will arm you with 15 more years of help and aid and ministry. I thought that was an interesting analogy. I thought, okay. I finished. And he was right. But those 15 years are over now. Or a nearing over. And when you come to various degrees of difficulty, you, you are compelled by grace to exhaustively utilize everything you've been given in your human capacity that you can attain and understand and teach and preach and live. 
but there are certain degrees of difficulty that compel us to exhaustively utilize all those things and we come to the end of our ability to understand and contemplate and know theology and philosophy and practice and when you get to the end of that hardship or you're in the middle of that hardship you're you're wondering really why i don't get this god or maybe you're being eyewitness of somebody else's calamity and you've exhaustively utilized everything you know about the word and about god and there are things about his word and about him we'll never know we come to the end of our own human ability and we've utilized all those things we have a choice to make we start to ask God the question why with integrity we start to ask God the question why without integrity we come to the end of that which we know And we're so tired of wanting to know why. It's at that moment we either submit ourselves to the God who's aware of the unknown to man, or we assume that we know enough about Him, or we can demand of Him that we share, He share with us that thing which is too wonderful for us to know Job had crossed that line making demands of God when he had come to the end of that which he knew about God and eloquently expressed and taught and debated about God for months now he's at the end he's seen his pride and his arrogance that will deal with the end here but as we progress towards the declaration in the declaration unto his repentance he states very very clearly after he says I have heard you by the hearing of the ear I've gotten all that I can the second part of Versailles but now my eyes see you Remember our opening illustration of Elizabeth Elliot? She said, the reward of my obedience? One turns in disbelief again from the circumstances and looks into the abyss. Remember this? But in the abyss, there's only blackness, a glimmer of light, no answering echo. Elizabeth's a pretty godly lady. It was a long time before I came to the realization that in our acceptance of what is given, whatever it may be, that God gives himself. This grief, this sorrow, this total loss that empties my hands and breaks my heart, I may, if I will, accept, and by accepting it, I find in my hands something to offer. And so I give it back to him who in mysterious exchange gives himself to me. And this is what Job's saying here. He's experienced the exchange. Now my eyes see you. I've come to the end of my understanding and I recognize and I submit to who you are 
and I'm ready to receive from you that which you're pleased to give me. Job simply stating that God is enough for him. It's at this point that we realize that Job, in the time of his intense struggle, was on his way to bringing the greatest glory to God. It was now where Job would find peace and solace for his heart as he willingly submits to God's sovereign justice, which he had gradually come to doubt during the time of his struggle. And now as he sees God, he's able to clearly see his own sin and his arrogance and in doubting God's justice. And friends, that's what striving to walk with God under the pressure of trial does. Grace presses us forward towards Christ's likeness at the same time while revealing our broken humanity. It's part of the refining process, isn't it? And as the dross flows to the top, as it were, of our hearts, we have an opportunity to address it if we truly understand who God is. And at the end of our capacity and, and intellect and maybe even selfishness, we're, we're able to exchange our infinite inability with the infinite sovereign person of God who alone can bring pre peace and joy to our hearts. Now Job is ready to clear the air finally between him and God. Here's where we truly discover the purpose of the book of Job, that it's not about Job's suffering or even how we are to handle suffering. It's about his relationship with God. It's about our relationship with God. It's about knowing God and desiring to know God regardless of our particular set of circumstances. It's interesting to me that we haven't had any particular discussion about Job's calamity for months now in Job's calendar. Whatever happened to Job happened to Job in a very, very short period of time. And then we've got months of enduring agony and months of debate and months of conversations among his friends. It's amazing to me as well that we haven't heard of Satan since the early days either. God's sovereign even over his activity. And we already know that. But understanding these things, we, we look at Job's particular confession in verse number 6. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust as in ashes. Now the language of the Old Testament is very, very clear here. Job's actually feeling spiritually gruesome before the Lord. It's, he's feeling somewhat deplorable before the Lord finding no help in himself to help himself. But exclusively only finding help in God. This is a picture of genuine repentance. As we know, Job had no sin that caused his calamity. 
Job's ignorance of the sovereign justice of God was not even his sin. He began well in his time of suffering. He continued well for months pursuing an understanding of God, even defending the Lord before his friends. As he nears the sunset weeks of his suffering, he realizes his spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. He comes to the end of all that he was as a person, and he, with pride, accuses and criticizes the sovereign God of justice. And again, now with open face turned towards the Lord, he realizes the sin. And in the response to his suffering, and he's ready to be done with it. He wishes the proverbial jury in the courtroom of heaven to strike from the records any comment that he had made against God and his justice. No questions asked. Job's dropping his case against God. And he says, I repent in dust as in ashes. Job knew all along he was not suffering because of sin. But he realized that he had sinned in the response of his suffering. Job had come to realize that he would never know the reasons for his calamity, but God did, and the judge of all the earth will always do right. Yes, Job was repenting of the fact that he had contended with God as though he were the one at fault, like Elihu said in chapter 33 and verse 14, and like God said in chapter 40 and verse 2. He had condemned God, just like Elihu said he had in chapter 34 and verse 17, and God said he had in chapter 40 and verse 8. He's admitting that he had, he had spoken excessively and ignorantly about God. But now he's done with all that, at least in relationship to God. You see, genuine repentance, a genuine turning away from sin, seeing your sin as God sees it, also compels us to be right with man. You'll notice with me in chapter 42 and verse 10, Job's friends are mentioned again. It says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed with his friends. We'll study more of this next week. When genuine repentance takes place in our heart, we desire exclusively to be right with God first and then man too. Amen. This is an aspect of spiritual growth I may go to my grave wondering about. How can one say they've made their heart right with God and still fear the face of men? It seems to me from a scriptural perspective that genuine repentance includes writing our hearts with both God and man. Yes, one may receive our confession of wrong and remember it no more, and the other may not. But there's follow-through for sure in genuine repentance, regardless of our circumstances. So that's a bit of Job's admission, Job's declaration, and, and Job's confession. I'd like to finish this morning with three theological statements and then four practical statements in our last several minutes together. Theologically speaking first, let's back up a little bit and remember that God never satisfactorily answers Job's question or addresses Job's complaints. 
Nor does God explain his sufferings. One man said, but if he did, the, the book would not be relevant to others enduring suffering which do not receive a theophany to address their case like Job did. God points out facts that Job and anyone else who shares his cultural assumptions can see or know, namely God's powers in creation and providence. It must be said that many religious sufferers do just that. They see a meaningful order in the world, and when that seems violated, they allow themselves to trust God's wisdom even when it's not manifest. End quote. God does not need to speak out of the whirlwind to us, dear friends. For God the Spirit within us and his intercessory ministry before God for us brings peace that surpasses all human comprehension. And our union with Christ as New Testament believers compels us to understand that neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord as we understand from Romans chapter 8. Secondly, one theologian recognizes this, that faith, though often held in esteem as a value in itself, is only as admirable as its object. God, our infinite creator, is to remain the object of our faith, whether we remain healthy or endure calamity. And thirdly, in the depth of our adversity by God's grace, you have the power to offer God something that he desires. And that's human loyalty. Which is the confidence of unconditional faith. When God made you his child by faith in Christ, he had no choice but to trust you to be conformed to the image of his son while enduring the dark clouds of affliction. That's what God's grace teaches us and compels us to do. Four simple applications. You see, folks, when we endure well, even though we don't have all the facts to our suffering, we're proving the wicked one false. For remember, Satan's the one that believes we only follow Christ because we have possessions, family, and position. Satan will never be able to comprehend the genuine salvation influence that God's grace has upon our hearts that compels us to loyalty to our creator regardless of our circumstances. But that's proof of saving faith. Secondly, it's a growing knowledge of God and his attributes that spark the love and submission of Job and even the realization that there are things too wonderful for him that he may never understand that he submits to. Since we're compelled by God's grace to continue to grow in our faith, which includes our understanding of God when affliction comes, submission to his will is more probable. And that placement of ourselves under the affliction will be done while seeing a God of grace and peace a God who is loving and caring. 
One of my friends wrote, knowing the answer to the question who, Job no longer needs to ask the question why. Third, I find this most amazing as well, and only a merciful act of God's grace. Job remains in the valley of the shadow of death, but now no longer fearing evil. We see him at the same point of his suffering when he's at his lowest, and now he's at his highest. Could it be that when you're at your ugliest, you can be at your greatest by God's grace? Could it be that we can count it all joy when we fall into various trials because God's grace is doing a great work in our heart, compelling us to pursue faithfulness and perseverance as Christ is formed in our hearts as Galatians 4.19 teaches. When God speaks, he reminds us of who he is and all that he's done for us in Christ for time and eternity. And we can rest in him even though our circumstances don't change. We don't, we will study it. We will need it in the sense that it's inspired to preserve scripture, but Job's ready to see God at this point. With unchanged circumstances. And finally, as we endure suffering together, let's come alongside one another with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's assume faith, therefore assume growth, and continue to build relationships with one another that prove necessary, essential, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death together. And remember, folks, people who suffer, godly people who suffer, can seemingly get a little ugly sometimes. I want you to remember that 12 times in these 42 chapters, Job calls himself righteous. He knows he's in the Lord. He knows his relationship with his creator is rock solid. He knows his theology. He still struggles. When our struggle is at the greatest, when you come to the point where you're feeling the ugly, you're looking into that abyss that's black. There's a wonderful exchange about to happen in that moment. Because every one of you has an end to yourself. And that's a wonderful place to be where God can pick up and begin. I was talking with a member of our congregation uh, just yesterday. One of his professors of a Christian university in, in California I don't have the specific numbers in me, but I believe this family had endured over 20 miscarriages. And all the miscarriages, they decided to foster to adopt 40 children. 
almost all of those 40 children turned against them in radical, dark ways. And in the midst of all that, they both were diagnosed with horrible cancer at the same time. So this is a professor teaching that class. And he made a statement. If you give me a second to find it, I think it's worth finding. That ministered to my heart. And if I get it wrong, that particular person is in the auditorium this morning. And he can, he can correct me. The professor said, we conquer in this life when we obey God in spite of the fears and doubts that are thrown at us by the second most powerful foes in the universe. When we obey God, even when people hurt us, take our property, get sick, and experience death, we humiliate Satan. You can never bring more glory to God than when you struggle through those moments. Job found his way to bringing glory to God. All by the grace of God. Amen. And individually and collectively, we can do the same. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us a look into the heart of this genuine saint. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to know more about him than he even knew about himself. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to know more about this story about you than maybe even Job knew. So, Lord, much has been given to us so far in the study of this book. And by God's grace, I'm, I'm so thankful that much will be required of us by the hand of our loving, gracious creator. As we've prayed a number of times, Lord, as we've gone through this book, we remember 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. Help this preacher and each saint here this morning to learn of you so that we can learn to entrust you, entrust ourselves to you as our faithful creator while we remain determined to do good things. In Christ's name.